Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn, joining you today from very, very hot Denver, Colorado. Hope everybody's having a great weekend. We have an interesting show today. We're going to talk about Lawrence Victor Harrison. And we'll talk about his names in a couple of minutes. And he truly is, um, I'm, I'm calling him an enigma. Larry Harrison, we could do a whole episode. We could do a couple of episodes on Lawrence Victor Harrison. But what we're going to do today is we're going to continue what we've done the last couple of weeks by looking at the trial testimony. So for today, we're going to put aside some of the questions about Harrison's credibility, his reputation, and we're just going to look at what he said at trial, except at the very end, we're going to circle back and we're going to look at some comments that were made about Harrison by Hector Boreas and raise a couple of questions regarding those. Before we jump into the trial transcripts, let's remember our three key objectives. Number one, we want to dispel false narratives. Number two, we want to question, not necessarily criticize, but question the government's efforts in the prosecution of those involved or perhaps involved in Agent Camarena's kidnapping and his murder, which includes the prosecutions, especially in this case, Zuno 1 and Zuno 2. And then three, we still want to try to understand and perhaps answer some of those unanswered questions regarding the Camarena case that we have talked about before. Harrison testified extensively at both trials, Zuno 1 and Zuno 2. Zuno 1, in particular, his direct testimony um, covers a couple hundred pages. And we're definitely not going to (laughs) spend the time that it takes to go over All of his testimony. So I've tried to digest it down a little bit for you. Then it's also true that he testified in Zuno 2, but a lot of his testimony, and frankly, a lot of the cross-examination is the same. So we're not going to repeat it, but there are a couple of nuggets in there that I think are very important. So let's start with Harrison's testimony in Zuno 1. So he testifies for the first time on Wednesday, June 6, 1990. And there are a couple of other witnesses who'd gone earlier in the morning. He comes in and starts his testimony at a mid-morning that day. And I'm going to walk through some of, again, what I thought was most important. Now, one of the things that's curious 
and we're going to talk about it a few times, was his involvement, his being Harrison's involvement with the military and the police in Guadalajara. So he had gone down to, to Mexico after spending some time probably or maybe at Berkeley and at Bolt Hall Law School. He goes to Guadalajara. He's a lawyer. He goes to Acapulco for a little bit, comes back to Guadalajara, and eventually starts um, defending a a communist supporter, probably for lack of a better term, which then in turn leads to him working with uh, the DFS and some others uh, in law enforcement in Guadalajara and Mexico. So one of the organizations that he deals with is the DFS. And we've talked extensively about the DFS. And the first individual that he really talked to was the head of the SWAT team. His name was Lieutenant Colonel Antonio Garate Bustamante. Now, your ears should be perking up at this point because that name comes up all the time. Remember last week, Placencia worked for Garate, Cervantes worked for Placencia, Godoy Lopez have connections to Garate Bustamante. Follow his name as we walk through some of these transcripts, okay? So he eventually starts to work with Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo. Or he and he's assigned to work with Fonseca, who, and we'll talk about that in a second, also has some credentials. So here's what he says, and, and we're gonna start. Uh, I'll try to give you some of the page numbers. More than anything, not because you're sitting there reading along, but because I always want people to know where this is coming from. Not making this stuff up. It's right from the transcripts. Question, when did you first come to work for Ernesto Fonseca in 1981? And how did that come about? Well, Comandante Martinez in the last part of 1981 told me that they had a communication problem at a house that was occupied by some compañeros. That means fellow officers or people that work together. I reported to that house, and it turned out to be the same house that had been occupied by Mr. Garate and Las Fuentes. And I repaired some radios that had been installed there. So again, if if you're not familiar, Harrison's claim to fame is that he was the radio guru for not only the cartels, but many of the police agencies in and around Guadalajara. So he's talking about Fonseca after he got there and he said, he entrusted me, he entrusted me to a system of radio communications that had been installed by somebody else. It actually was a marine ship-to-shore high-frequency system. They were ship radios. This is kind of kind of funny. 
I tried to make the radios that he had installed in his house and at various ranches work, but they were obviously unsuited to the type of communications that he wanted and to the terrain in which they were installed. And also they had been poorly installed, so it was impossible. This is the good part. Besides that, the radios were all on the frequencies of the telephone company here in the United States, the ship-to-shore frequencies, and also the U.S. Coast Guard. And that didn't seem to be the people with whom he wanted to communicate. At some point, he came to live in Ernesto Fonseca's residence He testifies on page 92 after the lunch break, so this is about 1.30 in the afternoon, that he started living with Ernesto Fonseca or at the house in July of 1983. And he sets up a new system, a new radio system, and he says it was a VHF communication system, very high frequency. It had a 74 megahertz offset. It was situated in channels that are property in Mexico of the Social Security office, but they're not used. That was to ensure that they would not be interfered with by other people and that they wouldn't have anybody else on their frequencies. The separation of the frequencies was so that anybody would be able to listen to the the frequency would not be able to hear who was talking. So if they were if somebody else got in, they couldn't hear who was talking. The separation between the transmission and reception, it consisted of four repeaters and initially some 50 radios. It was a system that was designed to eliminate the need for outside antennas on the cars or the houses, so as to elude detection. It was designed around sensitive repeaters that could work with handheld radios that would not need to be installed anywhere and wouldn't need any outside apparatus. Question, with these radios, just the handheld radios, were you able to communicate throughout Guadalajara? Answer, yes, throughout Guadalajara and the surrounding areas. So he um, he installs this system for Fonseca. He also talks, and I think we'll talk about this in a minute, but he talks about doing work for some of the men who work for Fonseca, Carl Quintero and his men, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo and some of his men. And, and again, we'll talk about more of that in a second. Question, this is on page 96. How long did you live in Ernesto Fonseca's residence? Until January, the end of January 1984. So he stops living in the residence, but he doesn't necessarily start um, or stop working until then. Now, I think this is really, really important. Did you, in the course of your work in maintaining this system, this is a question from the prosecution, have occasion to make frequent checks on how how well the system was performing. Answer, as the system engineer, I listened to the system and had full control of, control of it 24 hours a day during the entire time that it was installed and operated. 
question. And was it part of your job to continually check the reception quality in different parts of the city? Yes, it was. And well, how much of your time did you spend doing that? Answer, it was a 24-hour-a-day job. So keep that in mind, okay? We're talking about a system in Guadalajara that Harrison says he installed, installed in the ways we've discussed, and that he monitored, he says, 24 hours a day. Let's assume, you know, that that he slept at some point, but that he continuously monitored. Okay? Very important as we go along. Later on in his, his testimony, in his direct testimony, Harrison is asked questions about the relationship between some of the traffickers. And I think that this is, is, is important, and you'll see in particular why it's important in just a second. The questions start off... Um, Mr. Carlton, John Carlton, the assistant U.S. attorney who worked with Manny Madrano on the case, is trying to draw a distinction between kind of the bosses and the the workers or the you know the the bodyguards and things. And he's asking about were there people that got more deference than others, and it, it Harrison kind of jumps in and takes the lead because it's a little bit of an awkward way to to try to ask the questions, but he says, if I may, this is Harrison kind of answering. It was more that there was a lack of deference on the part of some individuals that they were his equals. Can you explain that a little bit more? What do you mean by that? Here's the answer. There was a group of people who, like him, were from the same state. They spoke to each other on a familiar basis. They each had their own retinues of people. They were bosses in their own right. They did not take orders from each other, but gave orders to their own personal bodyguards and sometimes to the retinues of other bosses. And they met together to make decisions without allowing other people to be physically present or close to them. Question. Well, was this a defined group? Can you identify the persons in that group? Yes, I can. Who were they? Listen to listen to this. They were Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, Rafael Caro Quintero, Miguel Angel Felix Gardo, Juan Jose Esparagoza, Javier Barba Hernandez, Manuel Salcedo Uzeta. And then he says, Asparagoza's name was El, nickname was El Azul. Salcido's was Cochiloco. Question, and were these persons with whom Ernesto Fonseca, in your experience, treated as equals? Yes, they were. Okay. Now, okay. A couple of things I want to, I'm going to go in order. So keep that in mind, okay? We'll, we're going to get back to the group of people that were equals and who really was there in, in just a second. But rather than 
jumping back and forth. Let's continue on the path of the direct examination. A little bit later, there are questions relating to Ernesto Fon, or not to Ernesto Fonseca, sorry, but to Rafael Caracintero and also Miguel Angel Felix Gardo. So, John Carlton asks, did you ever have occasion to perform any electronics or communications work for Caro? Yes, I did. What did you do for him? I assisted in the purchase, maintenance, and installation of a system that was involved in a town that the the court reporter couldn't um, couldn't understand, Sonora, in 1982 without meeting him. But it was him, he later told me. And then he joined with Ernesto in the use of a system that I had installed in 1983 in Guadalajara. Was this the system utilizing handheld radios and repeaters that you already described? Yes, it was. I, then he goes on, he says, I did not assign the original call signals, but I did assign the call signals to the group of Rafael Caracantero and his men. When was that? It would have been around November, probably November of 1983. They arrived after the original call signals had been assigned. And of course, he then says he was the one who would... Um, or to he was the one. Harrison was the one who assigned Rafael Caro Quintero the call signal R1, which becomes infamous in the uh, the gold bracelet with the R1 and diamonds that gets shown around at various times. He also talks about the relationship between Caro and Fonseca. One thing in particular, he describes a, a series of phone calls where Rafa and Fonseca are calling people who owe them money and kind of doing uh, telephonic collections. But what's important is he says, um, sometimes Mr. Fonseca would refer to Mr. Carl. Or, sorry, let me say that again. Sometimes Mr. Fonseca would defer to Mr. Carl. Sometimes Mr. Carl would defer to Mr. Fonseca. Sometimes they both would speak on the phone call to the same delinquent debtor. Question, did you ever hear Ernesto Fonseca refer to Carl as his partner? Yes, I did. And vice versa? Yes. And then he goes on to say, um, that he had met Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo in the past because he had, again, also worked on some electronics for him. And then there's the question, did you ever hear Fonseca refer to Felix as his partner? Yes, I did. Now, okay. So you've got this group of people that includes more than just Fonseca, Carlo Quintero, and Felix Gallardo all being treated as equals. Okay. And you have Felix Gallardo specifically being said, yes, he referred to Fonseca as his partner. Now, listen to this. And, and when you're listening to this, think back to some of the things we've talked about with respect to the kidnapping and who might have orchestrated it and who might not have been involved. 
So this is on 115 of the transcript. Okay. <clears throat> Did there come a time, to your knowledge, when Felix had a disagreement of sorts with Fonseca and Caro? Yes, there did. When was that? The last part of 1983 and all during 1984. Okay. Let me repeat that. The last part of 1983 and all during 1984. Did he express to you what this disagreement was? Yes, he did. What was it? Mr. Felix Gallardo told me that both Mr. Fonseca and Mr. Carl were too wild, that they were attracting too much attention, and that he did not want to be around them. Though he had to continue business with them, he didn't want to be around them any longer because they were too rowdy. Now, he also talks later on about... Javier Barber Hernandez. And this comes up a couple of times, and I'll try and catch um, every time they do. But he says, um, with respect to Javier Barber, um, did you ever see him at, or how frequently did you see him at Ernesto Fonseca's house? Answer, daily. Did you ever hear Javier Barber give any orders? Yes, I did. Did he give any to you? Yes, he did. At some point, did you notice a change in his relationship with Ernesto Fonseca? Yes, I did. What did you notice? Listen to this. I noticed that from being his lieutenant, he became his equal or his partner. Remember, we said a couple weeks ago that there was a lot to indicate that Javier Barba was maybe more involved in the trafficking and things than than, uh, than we thought, and maybe had more to do with the actual kidnapping and interrogation of Agent Camarena. This seems to support that. Now, Harrison talks about two occasions when he saw Ruben Zuno Arce. And we'll get to some of the cross-examination, but to summarize, he later says, look, I didn't volunteer this information in part because I had no knowledge that Ruben Zuno was involved in drug trafficking at all. But at one point I was asked, and I believe it was by Manny Medrano, have you ever seen Ruben Zuno Arce? And Harrison says that he said, yes, of course. Everybody knows who Ruben Zuno is. And I specifically saw him twice. So there's two different times when um, he says he saw him. One is what we'll call the dancing horse party. And he says, now drawing your attention, Mr. Harrison, to the month of November 1983, did you have occasion at that time to attend a party in Guadalajara? Answer, the party took place at the house in La Fuentes on Circle, Cirque en Valacion, sir. Okay, and I, I apologize for the butchered pronunciation. Uh, 
And then he says, did you see Mr. Zuno there? He said, yes, I saw Don Rubin greet Mr. Caro at the party. Now, what was Caro doing there? Mr. Caro was on top of a horse. He was making a horse dance. They had purchased some horses that had been taught to dance by the Caballerando, a horse trainer of a famous Mexican singer, and they were dancing these horses to music. Mr. Carl was smoking a base cigarette and seated on top of the horse, making it dance. When Mr. Zuno appeared, he walked over to him. Mr. Carl got down off the horse, and they embraced each other in an abrazo, which is a way of greeting, and that's what I saw. Now, one thing I want to point out, notice that at the very beginning, he called Ruben Zuno Arce Don Ruben. In closing arguments, Manny Madrano makes an issue of that and says every time people refer to Ruben Zunarse, they refer to him as Don Ruben, and almost makes the you know the analogy, even though it's it, it's more subtle and less expressed to you know Don Corleone. That and and basically says he had to have been a powerful person in the traffickers' world because they all refer to him as Don Rubin. I think that's a false equivalency. I think it always was, but nevertheless, it's there. He then goes on to say the other time that he saw Zuno was at Mr. Fonseca's residence. He says. I saw Don Rubin come in there one time. He was led into the gate, the gate that was in the garage. He was taken directly to Mr. Fonseca's office. They were there together 45 minutes, perhaps an hour, and then Mr. Zuno left. Do you recall when that occurred? It was sometime after November of 1983, and I would assume that it was somewhere in the first part of December. So December of 1983 so keep that in mind with respect to the timeline. Okay? Remember when the alleged conspiracy meetings start, you know, September, October of 1984. So the last time he saw Don Rubin, using his words, was with Fonseca, December of 1983. And that becomes pretty important. Now... Here's one other thing that, that is hard to digest, but I'll do the best I can. When Harrison testified, he gets asked about 881 Lope de Vega. And the question becomes, or the question is, was there ever a time when driving past that house that you overheard a radio transmission from Caro? Yes, there was. And did you notice anything unusual about that radio transmission? I noticed it was coming directly from that house because of the manipulations that I made on my radio. And what did you notice about the transmission that led you to that conclusion? It would take a technical explanation blah, blah, blah. In any event, the person you identified as Carl Quintero. Yes, I did. Now, do you know when this event occurred? It was in January or February of 1984. This is an interesting set of facts. 
for a variety of reasons. Remember the testimony produced by Zuno Arce's defense team was that he had sold the house to an intermediary of Caro Quintero's in early 1985. And there was testimony from someone who had said he had rented or lived in that house for many, many years until leaving in towards the latter part of 1984. So this is inconsistent with all of that testimony. We can spend a lot of time trying to figure out who's telling the truth and who isn't. I'm just going to leave it at there for the moment. Okay. I want to get back to, um, well, let me back up. I'm sorry. One more thing that comes up with respect to the house. Okay. And he says, did you have occasion to return to that house at a later time? That's the question from John Carlton. Yes, I did. And why was that? I was asked to go there. By whom? Javier Barbara Hernandez. When did he ask you to do this? He asked me in the latter part of August of 1984. When did, or for what purpose did he ask you to go there? He asked me to go and see about something about the gate system that was at the house. Did you do that? Yes, I did. And what happened when I, when you went there? I knocked on the gate when a caretaker came out. He told me that Mr. Carl wasn't there. And that I would have to come back later. Had you been sent to do some work for Carl? I'd been sent to do some work on the house. I was told by Mr. Barber that it was Rafa's house. And I would go and look at the gate system. So, Harrison's testimony appears to be that through the period of 1984... The house at 881 Lope de Vega was owned by, or at least inhabited by, referred to as his, Caro Quintero, not Ruben Zuno. Now, looking back on it, that kind of cuts both ways with respect to um, the prosecution of Ruben Zuno Arce, but be that as it may, that's part of the testimony. Harrison then talks about him getting tired of working for Fonseca, that he had a family, never got to see him. There were, you know, if he was maintaining the system and monitoring the system 24 hours a day, that's a lot of work. So he eventually stopped working. And he says that the last day he worked for Ernesto Fonseca or performed any work for Ernesto Fonseca was September 11, 1984. All right. And he reiterates that a couple of different times in the testimony. He goes on, though, and this is where we, we get to, to meet our old friend, Garate Bustamante. He says, during 1985, this is a question from John Carlton. Did you have some involvement with some aircraft? Yes, I did. When was that? I think it was July or August of 1985. So this is post-Camarena 
kidnapping and murder. He says, I was asked by Mr. Antonio Grate Bustamante to monitor the communications of a network that had been set up to receive airplanes from Colombia and land them in the state of Jalisco. How many times did you have such involvement? The planes landed twice. And what did you do in relation to these landings? Set up communications facilities, monitored the arrival of the aircraft, and accompanied the whatever would come on the aircraft to a ranch in Durango and assisted with the takeoff of the airplane and reported the activities back to Mr. Garate. Hey. So once again, Garate Bustamante not only involved with Harrison the pre-work for car for Fonseca but also after that period okay now you get some some cross examination coming up and and I'll be honest the 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 cross examination tends to be a little more shall we say technical did you say this in the in your grand jury testimony that wasn't quite consistent with what you said now, those sorts of things. Frankly, it's not that fascinating to to read. Um, and I say that having, you know, sat th- through some of it. Um, but one of the things that, that is interesting is um, he's asked a question. What name were you given at birth? George Marshall Levis. And in the course of your lifetime, how many different names have you used? Two. And what were they? He says, the one I just told you, George Marshall Levis and Lawrence Victor Harrison. And then he says, well, wait a second, wait a second. And this is, this is the cross-examination from Zuno's counsel. Have you on occasion used the name Harrison Cummings? Yes or no, sir? Please. I've used the name Lawrence Victor Harrison Cummings. And have you used the name Sir George Marshall Davis? Yes, I have. So when you just told us you used two names and only two, that was a lie. Is that right? No, sir, that is not a lie. But he does admit that he had used at least four different names. And it's interesting he says that he went and he registered, um, and, and I got this later, but he registered for some classes at Berkeley and Bolt Hall, but he just audited them. He didn't actually attend. He can't remember anybody the, that he attended with, and that he registered under the George Marshall name, but then changed it to Lawrence Victor Harrison. And I just ask you to think back in your personal life experiences. How often do people go to college and then change their name? Completely, right? George Marshall Lavis Lawrence Victor Harrison. Not exactly close. You know, it's not, he's not adding a name. He's not get you know, not taking his wife's name. Nothing like that. Okay. Yeah. The name I used when I first went to Berkeley was George Marshall Davis. George Marshall Davis. I changed it to Lawrence Victor Harrison. So I I misspoke. He didn't even use his given name, his birth given name. When he first went to Berkeley, he used a different name and then changed it 
to Lawrence Victor Harrison. You know, in and of itself, what does that mean? I don't know, but um, but it's odd. And I think Harrison is, under any circumstances, has to be viewed as unusual. Again, he ends up being asked about the meetings attended by the traffickers. Okay? And he's, the question is, you attended or were present at a number of meetings you've told us about between certain drug lords. Is that correct? Yes, sir, that's correct. And who were those people? Ernesto Fonseca Correa, Javier Barba Hernandez, Manuel Salcido, Miguel Angel Felix Gardo, Juan Jose Esparagosa. Obviously, he leaves out Rafael Caracintero, um, which has to have just been, you know, an inadvertent omission. But it's also notable he never, ever, ever mentions Ruben Zunoarce, right? And remember, the government's case was that he was such an integral part of the the traffickers that he got gets involved in the discussions of doing something about the um about you know the the DEA and the agent that was giving him trouble. Now he gets asked on cross examination some more correct some more issues with respect to Garate. Uh, pertinent here to our discussion is this. Question, and Mr. Garate worked with Ernesto Fonseca, did he not? He described himself as Ernesto Fonseca's people, yes. And you knew he was involved in the drug dealing of Ernesto Fonseca, did you not? The same answer applies. There came a time when I knew that was what was happening. Yes, that is true. Question. There were a relatively large number of meetings that you described. Is that correct? Between Felix Gallardo and Quintero and Fonseca and Barbara Hernandez and Salcido, there was a large number of meetings that you were around at the locations you told us. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Mr. Zuno was not present at any of those meetings, was he? No, sir. He was not present at any of those meetings. Going back to how he got to the United States, how he became an informant for the DEA. Question, who did you first contact before you came here about coming here? Mr. Garate. Again, you can't get rid of that, uh, rid of that name. Um, so he says, the question, now... Did he contact you sometime in 1989 and say, can you supply some information for us about associations of people? No, sir, he did not. He sent somebody to ask if I could come to the United States. And then the question is, being in jail, you had no firsthand knowledge of any of the events that led up to the kidnapping of Enrique Camarena, did you? The events that led up to it, yes. The events surrounding the kidnapping and murder of Enrique Camarena, no. I have no knowledge. Okay. And then, finally, 
who was the first person in the DEA that you spoke to, Hector Boreas. When was that? September of 1989. Now, please, please keep that date in mind. September of 1989. It's very, very important, I think, to something that we're going to conclude with in just a couple of minutes here. As I said earlier, the testimony of Harrison and the cross-examination of Harrison in Zuno 2 um, you know, wasn't really all that exciting. Oh, wait, I've got some something else. I'm sorry. Um, here's a couple of other things. I apologize. Harrison talked, it, it spoke again on uh, Thursday, June 7th in the morning. Okay, so he had talked on June 6th, a Wednesday in the afternoon or the mid morning throughout the day, and then he comes back. Question. Question. Now, listen to this very, very carefully. Did you ever work in any capacity for any agency of the U.S. government? Answer. No, I did not. Keep that in mind when we talk in just a few minutes. Here's what he says to about Garate. When you spoke to Garate Bustamante on the several occasions you told us you spoke to him before coming to the United States, did you tell him what you told us yesterday? That you had no personal knowledge of any kind of any involvement by Mr. Zuno, Zuno in the planning for and the actual kidnapping of Enrique Camarena. On the occasions I told you I spoke to Mr. Garate before coming here to the United States, we did not discuss any aspect of this case. We never got into it. So just keep in mind, he doesn't say, you're misstating my testimony. The prosecution doesn't jump up and say, that's not what he said yesterday. Right? When Mr. Medvin says, did you tell him what you told us yesterday, that you had no personal knowledge of any kind of any involvement by Mr. Zuno in the planning for and the actual kidnapping of Enrique Camarena, nobody said that's not an accurate representation of his testimony. All he says in response to this particular question is, I didn't talk to anybody. Or I didn't talk to him about the case. And there's a long section talking about the fact that, um, of, remember earlier I said that he said that he hadn't said anything about Zuno and then he was just asked kind of a simple question, hey, have you ever seen Zuno? And then he relayed the dancing horse story and then the one time in Fonseca's office. He gets asked again about um, Javier Barber Hernandez. Here comes the question. The trusted people in Mrs. Fonseca's organization were Mr. Barba? Answer, Mr. Barber was a trusted confidant of Mr. Fonseca. 
later on, he appeared to be on an equal basis with him. And a person referred to as Samuel Ramirez Razo? Answer. Samuel Ramirez Razo was also a trusted confidant. Actually, you might say that Mr. Barba took his place, edged him out. So that's kind of interesting. And then the last thing of note from Harrison's testimony is this, and I'll I'll explain after we go through these questions. And this is coming from um, a different defense counsel. This is from Mary Kelly, who was one of the lawyers along with Michael Meza for Juan Jose Bernabe Ramirez. So Ms. Kelly says, did you advise Mr. Fonseca about his narcotics trafficking with respect to the Americans at any point? I gave him a warning. Did he indicate to you that the warning wasn't necessary because he had an understanding with them? He told me I was crazy. He did not tell you that he had that there was together with the Americans and had an understanding with them? Answer. He said he thought there was no danger. So what you're saying is he never said to you that he had an understanding with the Americans or being together with the Americans. He did say that, yes. Did Mr. Barbara Hernandez tell you that it was a political thing that you shouldn't be involved in? Answer, yes, he did. Now, important note, Ms. Kelly was the defense counsel most aggressively trying to get testimony regarding the CIA's activities in Guadalajara and the CIA's connections to the traffickers, Carl Fonseca, Miguel Angel Filiscardo. And almost all of her efforts were denied by Judge Rafiti. We've talked about this in the past. I'll say it again. The rumors and stories that Judge Rafiti was kind of put on this case to be the protector of the CIA, I find to be completely false, nonsensical, and completely contrary to everything I saw at trial, both trials. I also note that no appeals court found this issue to be compelling, found Judge Rafiti's actions in this regard to be improper. But, but what we do know is that Mary Kelly tried to make the connection, and others did too. Well, one modest counsel, Marty Stoller, definitely tried to, to do it as well. But they tried to bring in issues with respect to the CIA. Those were rebuffed by Judge Rafiti saying that they were, in essence, inapplicable to the issues at the trial. So there you have that.
couple things I want to discuss with you about Harrison. And as I said, we could spend way more time on Harrison than uh, they, you know, than we, than we have or that we need to. But two things that that strike me. One is the comment from Harrison. Were you ever an agent for or employed by any agency of the United States? No. And yet, in Eclipse of the Assassins, which we've discussed over and over, um, he's commonly referred to, and I think refers to himself as a former CIA agent. Hector Bereas' book seems to indicate that he is believed to be a CIA agent. So that's number one. Number two, remember the testimony we just went over. The first person in the DEA that Harrison spoke to, according to Harrison, was Bereas in September of 1989. And if you remember from Hector's book, and in large part from The Last Narc, he talks about first meeting or first talking to Harrison. Remember, he talked to him on the phone, and then they set up a a meeting. But according to... According to Bereas, the meeting doesn't occur as it was supposed to because Dale Stinson comes in, and after he leaves, he leaves talking to Harrison. Harrison doesn't want to talk. And here's what he says. This is... um, This is what... um, Hector Boreas says on page 189 of his book, and I'm just going to read a little bit of it to you. Through all my conversations with Larry Harrison until I met him in person, I always felt he treated me with a degree of arrogance. He was alternatively rude, dismissive, entitled. But having asked him that question for the first time, I saw him look over me with emotion, sympathy. He held that look for a while. As he thought to himself, even repeating the question as if stunned by the very ignorance of it. You want to know who sold Kiki Camarena out, Hector? I did, but never in my wildest imagination was I prepared for his answer. We did. I looked at him, incredulous. Who's we? The U.S. government that you and I work for. You and I work for. I sat stunned for a moment, just staring at him. His initial expression of sympathy quickly gave way to contempt. Duh, he said, as if speaking to an imbecile. Hector, I work for the CIA. How stupid are you? Then he goes on and he he says, talks about Stinson. Um, Berea says, what? Stinson is in the CIA? Of course he is, you dumbass. The CIA has dozens of agents in Mexico. They work for every agency. Then it goes on. You're telling me. That our government, the U.S. government, was involved in Kiki's abduction and murder. That's exactly what I'm telling you. I know all about Kiki Camarena. 
I know why they picked him up. I know why they killed him. I know everything about it and how deep it goes. So let me ask you a question. Let's assume for the sake of argument that what Boreas said there is correct. And let's assume that that was in September-ish of 1989. And Harrison then testifies in June of 1990. Who's sitting at the prosecution desk along with AUSA's Medrano and Carlton? Hector Boreas. And what is said about Harrison knowing everything about why Kiki was picked up? I know all about Kiki Camarena. I know why they picked him up. I know why they killed him. I know how deep everything goes. Nobody says anything about that. And let me ask you this. If that's actually what happened... And Hector has that information. What do you think the odds are that he didn't share it with a USA's Medrano and or Carlton? Between none and none, I submit. And so if, it, if that's the case, if that's the case, aren't they guilty of sitting there asking questions of a man who said that he knows the real reasons for the benefit of prosecuting others. Isn't that a violation of some oath, some degree of integrity? And let me ask you this. Let's assume, again, that what Harrison says is true. I know all about Kiki Camarena. I know why they picked him up. And yet when he's asked, you have no knowledge of Ruben Zunarce being involved in Kiki Camarena's abduction or murder. He agrees with that. And yet they're prosecuting him. Zuno. If that's what Harrison told to Boreas, and if Boreas told that to Madrano and Carlton, It stinks to high heaven. No matter who you think is guilty. There are many people that I know and respect who think it's entirely possible that Ruben Zuno might have had some involvement. I don't subscribe to that. But even they, I think, have to say, this sounds wrong. Where is the ethics of the prosecution to say, we have contrary information? And moreover, why wasn't that statement disclosed to the defense? I think someone's got some answering to do. And it bothers me. It bothers me a lot. And that, my friends, is why we went through the testimony of Lawrence Victor Harrison, George Marshall, or whatever he was calling himself. 
I've reached out to several people who knew Harrison um, in an effort to get a better understanding of him. By and large, um, I have been rebuffed in those efforts. The authors of Eclipse of the Assassins quote me as calling him a pathological liar. Kind of wish I could take that back because that doesn't sound like a very great quote from me. But it might also be true. Um, but they completely buy into everything that Harrison had said, as did the reporter Charles Bowden, who wrote the Blood on the Corn series. His partner has essentially refused to talk to me. So I don't have a whole lot more information with respect to Harrison. Um, I've also been told that he had an opportunity, Harrison did, to make what you might call a deathbed confession and elected not to do so. So there you have it. That is Lawrence Victor Harrison in an hour. As I say, we could have spent a lot more time. Next week, I believe, I'm, there's a couple of other kind of interesting um, notes in, in the trial testimony. I mean, remember, it was a six-week trial. Um, but I think next week, we're going to talk directly about Hector Berea's, as I've intimated before. There's some, there's some tidbits in there that you're going to enjoy. But uh, let me know what you think about Harrison. Let me know if you think there's other places we should go, we should talk, we should look at. And as always, thank you for joining me. Have a good week, and we'll see you next week on Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. Take care.